0: split sermon this afternoon is Reg Nolan with the message, the message is in the music. Reg, if you would. Last week, I sat on pins and needles throughout Steve's sermon on Kai King's David Joyous Heart Club Band, wondering whether he was going to usurp the message that I'd been planning for three weeks ahead. (laughs) Fortunately, he took a different tack from what I uh, had planned, so my message has survived. How many messages do we typically hear on any given Sabbath? Of course, we hear the spoken messages in the split sermon and the full sermon, but there's at least one more message in the song service. Sometimes there may even be a message in the uh, opening and closing prayers. A conscientious uh, song leader will usually choose one of two approaches. He selects songs that lead into the next message as a musical prelude to the spoken message. This approach assumes, of course, that he has the titles or at least the topics of the messages in advance. Or he uh, selects a sequence of songs with a theme to develop the third message through the music. That's what Ken is doing today with with a theme of Thanksgiving. Even when a song leader does not consciously select his uh, songs with intent, if he allows himself to be open and submissive to the will of God, then God will often put in his mind to lead songs that may appear completely unrelated at the beginning, but which end up reinforcing uh, a point made in one or the other of the spoken messages that's being brought to the congregation. I have seen this happen so many times, it's not funny. It is evidence that God is guiding the service, even though the speakers and the song leaders do not collaborate. I feel that Steve's message last week was a prelude to what I'm uh, going to present to you today. Now, we all have favorite hymns, and hers, uh, favorite spiritual songs, catchy tunes that we find ourselves humming or singing or playing over and over in our heads. Music is indeed uh, one of the most popular, most powerful mediums that's been used to indoctrinate congregations for years. We human beings have a natural affinity for music, for rhythm, for rhyme, for melody, for harmonics, other poetic devices that appeal to our aesthetic sense of beauty in that sound. Although we differ drastically in what we may consider beautiful. Uh, For example, while I like classical music and some some of the old hard rock things do not care for country. I know many people do. To me, it sounds like someone that needs to be shot. Uh, Okay, One person's expressive guitar renderings may be a cacophonous din to another. One person's lyrical musings may sound like a shrieking banshee to another. But some kind of music appeals to almost everyone. In fact, Howard Gardner a noted uh, psychologist and educator, has identified musical intelligence as one of the primary nine multiple intelligences, one of the original seven that are localized abilities in the brain that can be developed, developed with targeted exercise and discipline. However, there may be windows of opportunity during which those abilities need to be initialized if they are to develop, be developed later in life. Music is a classic example. A baby must be exposed to music during the first five years of his life if that ability is to be developed later. Must be exposed to music within the first five years of life. Uh, Otherwise, it becomes very, very difficult. Ever try to uh, learn to play a musical instrument as an adult? Very difficult. If you teach to start the child very young on the piano, then he can pick it up along the way. But uh, later in life, it becomes much more difficult. During the first five years of life, the baby's brain is developing connections to anything and everything possible. Those neural pathways that remain active and regularly used survive the draconian pruning that the brain makes about age five in order to become more efficient. About age five, the brain goes through a drastic cut. It cuts out all those extra connections that aren't regularly used to make the brain more efficient. If the pathways for the music have been used regularly, then they will survive. If they haven't, they'll be cut. So if a baby hears music regularly, then those pathways can survive, which is great because music, um, let's see, the brain will later use those same pathways developed in music to help develop (coughs) the mathematical intelligence which is the study of patterns and relationships, some of which are numbers. Hearing music regularly is not usually a problem because mothers often sing to their babies. And when the baby hears the music, its brain forms the neural pathways reinforced with repetition. Messages traveling along these pathways trigger trigger a dopamine response that creates a sensation of pleasure in the brain. Oh yeah, yeah, do that, do that again. That that, that feels great. Okay, the brain responds that way. <clears throat> has a dopamine pre- pleasure response. Um. Okay, interestingly, if the music is highly structured, then the pathways in the brain will become more complex and highly structured as well. An observation that led to a movement during the last half of the uh, last few decades of the last century to advocate uh, for pediatric gurus to advocate. Uh, exposing infants to Mozart for the mind, or since classical music, Baroque in particular, is highly structured and complex, and would presumably lead to the formation of more complex structures in the baby's brain. Later experiments, however, determined that this was not quite true, that the type of music did not matter so much as did the presence of music, regardless of the genre. In fact, if you are familiar with some of the Baroque music, some of box organ music could terrify an infant instead of stimulating the growth of neural pathways. Okay, the element of music that really appeals to our brains is patterning, patterning. According to Jason Silva of National Geographic's Brain Games, our brains just love to discover pattern. Oh, there's one, there's one. Okay, it loves to discover pattern. In, indeed, they seek to find pattern in everything, even when there is no overt pattern there. That can sometimes lead to the development of superstitions, when the brain makes associations between the two events that aren't necessarily related, where the, the relationship is incidental instead of causal. For example, a baseball player that... Uh, forgets to change his underwear, goes out and hits a home run, then develops the superstition, I I, want to wear dirty underwear every time I go to the plate. Okay, that's a superstition that's developed. He develops a causal link between the two events, even though the link is incidental. But music is rich in patterns. It has rhythm, rhyme, assonance, consonants, alliteration, chordal progression, harmonics, melodies, phrase repetitions, refrains, all sorts of things. So that music actually seduces our brain. Its internal reward system releases a burst of dopamine pleasure whenever it finds such a pattern, which explains why some of us can get hooked on puzzles and video games and the like. The brain's natural affinity for music and pattern um, Okay, hold on. Someone's shifted my notes around. Oh, well. And and For music and pattern together with the the internal reward system, uh, then makes music into a natural mnemonic, that is a memory device. If we associate or pair content, significant content, semantic content, with song, then the mental replay of the song retrieves the paired content as well. Just as in the few, last few decades we have developed the scientific justification for this mnemonic, but we have been using it for centuries. For illiterate societies in particular, song and poetry have been the vehicles for the transmission of their culture. Homer, for example, recited the tales of the Achilles and the Odysseus when he sang the Iliad and the Odyssey. The bards of England, called Schultz, um, recited the tales of Beowulf and the Arthurian legend through song. We recite our history, our stories in song. We proclaim our beliefs, our faith in song. We declare our love, our loyalty in song. Sadly though, we are losing much of our heritage today because today's young mothers aren't singing the songs of our culture. They aren't singing the songs of our culture to those, to those babies anymore. Um, instead, they turn on the radio or television to entertain or amuse their children and are unwittingly programming the children for the, with the garbage of pop culture. If I were to mention, most of you guys out here are within my range, um, if I were to mention Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, John Henry, to any baby boomer, boomer or before, there's a good chance it would bring to mind the theme song from the old television programs, right? Okay. If I were to mention those same names to my students, they have no idea what I'm talking about. They have no idea what I'm talking about. They do not know who the American heroes are, let alone evoke any musical association. It's no wonder that my students don't catch many of my illusions. They have never received our culture in song. For religion in particular, music has played a vital role. Through music, we recount the stories of the Bible. The Song of Moses. Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. If I had my way, the Song of Samson. The whale that swallowed Jonah. By the waters of Babylon. All the Christmas songs, even though they were filled with error. Zacchaeus. How many of us would even know the story of Zacchaeus if it weren't for the song we learned as a child? (coughs) Now, Zacchaeus, the story of Zacchaeus is mentioned only one time in Luke 19 verses one through six or so. And in that one thing, we hear see the story. But what do we remember? We remember the story we learned as a child. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And when the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree, and he said, Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree, for I'm going to your house today. You remember that? You remember that? Okay. That song is lost. We no longer teach it to the children. We no longer teach it to the children. We're losing a lot of our stories. We're losing a lot of our culture because we no longer sing the stories of our culture to our children. Okay. We emphasize, um, so one of the things they do is they tell stories. We can also empathize with David through the Psalms and and Aesop, too, as well. Okay. as he meditates on the yearnings of our heart, we declare, we reinforce our beliefs as we, sing, uh, as we practice singing doctrine, even when those doctrines are wrong. For practice makes permanent. It ingrains in our mind whatever uh, we are affirming. We affirm our love and our devotion to Jesus and one another through songs of praise and worship. Now, for centuries, the Catholic clergy and poor economic conditions kept the masses of people illiterate so that the clergy had nearly complete control over the information about Scripture available to the common man. Consequently, the masses learned only what the clergy wanted them to know. The concept of universal literacy is truly a Protestant idea. Each the, that each individual is capable of establishing his own relationship with God if given the opportunity to seek it from the Scriptures himself. But the Catholic Church clergy deliberately kept the masses in ignorance by denying them access to the Scriptures, the, and the only Scriptures for years were in Latin, so that the common man would not even understand the Bible, even if he were to acquire one. Keeping the scripture in Latin and out of the language of the laity gave the clergy exclusive control over the spiritual knowledge of millions. Thus the common man learned only what he was told or heard in the liturgy. We cannot underestimate the debt of gratitude that we owe to William Tyndall and the others who sacrificed their lives to put the scripture in the hands of the common man in the hands of the people. That is a great debt, you, we cannot underestimate that. If we listen to a Catholic mass for its musical, musicality only, then we discovered it resembled an incana, incantation, complete with cadence and rhythm, rising and falling pitches, repetitive sonic devices such as rhyme, assonance, consonance, alliteration. Further, that cadence that they have dictates the duration, the speed, the silence, the rest that's involved, all musical qualities. Together, that musicality of the liturgy appeals to our musical intelligence and to our pattern-addicted brain. In conditioning us with a dopamine shot of pleasure, it becomes memorable. And we attach with with that musicality the content of whatever's in that song as well. Thus, reinforced with repetition, the message in the music, the wrong, becomes ingrained as belief. If one were to ask many nominal Christians today what they believe, they might, you might get a, 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 some kind of vague response as to what the, the statement of the doctrine is. But if you were, we were to press them as to why they believe it, they'd be hard-pressed to get, give you a decent response. Certainly nothing biblical. Partly because where they learned it was in the songs, in the music, not in the scripture. Um, They simply assimilated it from the songs that were filled with erroneous doctrine. For example, if you ask most nominal Christians to describe the nativity, something very common right now, They will report Mary and Joseph in the stable with the baby Jesus in the manger with three shepherds and three wise men bearing three kinds of gifts looked down upon him while a host of angels and maybe Santa too were singing on on the top of the roof. or up on top of the roof singing. That's the traditional picture of the nativity. If we were to ask them, uh, to describe the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They will report his death on a cross, not a stake, from a broken heart on Friday evening, followed by an Easter Sunday morning sunrise, all without a shred of biblical evidence to support their assertions. Where do they get such unfounded ideas? In all likelihood, they came from the song, repeated and ingrained so deeply into their mind that they actually believe that such ideas are biblical. They are the. They are deceived, seduced by the music. For example, We Three Kings. There were never three kings mentioned in Scripture. And they certainly did not show up at the manger. Okay? Uh, the First Noel. Okay? Those are typical songs, Christmas songs at this time of year that you'll hear that advocate these, the Magi showing up at the manger. It did not happen. They didn't show up for at least two years later. And when they did show up, they showed up at the house. Okay, so there's all sorts of error, but you you can't convince the normal person of that, the average uh, Christian on the street of that, because they are deceived by the music. So, music is a powerful force, naturally attuned to our mind. But power alone does not make something inherently good or bad. That depends upon the intent of the user, like a knife. It can be either a tool or a weapon. Yeah, I've seen how music has been misused by Catholicism to distort the message of Scripture, but it can also be used uh, positively. In his feast, for example, God commands us to rejoice. And one of the best ways to rejoice is to sing. Here's my lead scripture, um, Ephesians 5, uh, 18 to 21. Do not be drunk with wine, which is in excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to, for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God. Okay? And then Colossians, uh, same idea in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Notice that. Songs teach. Songs admonish. Songs, uh, songs help us in this way. They, th- we learn from it. They're, they're rich in wisdom. Okay. Further, apparently God is not all that particular about how great an instrument our voice is. For in Psalm 100, we see that he is content with a joyful noise. <clears throat> uh, in Psalm 100, verses 1 and 2, a, psal- a, praise of, a psalm of praise. Make joyful noise to the Lord, all ye land. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. So he doesn't mind that we can't carry a tune in a tin bucket with a lid on it. Okay, all that matters is that we're making the effort, apparently. All right, Psalm 98, 1 through 6, and reinforces the same idea. A psalm, oh, sing to Jehovah a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have have saved for him. Jehovah has made, has Jehovah has made known his salvation, his righteousness. He has unveiled to the eyes of his nation. He has remembered his mercy and his truth toward the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of Jehovah. Make a joyful noise to Jehovah, all the earth. Break out and rejoice and sing praise. Sing to the Jehovah with a harp, with a harp and the voice of a psalm, with a trumpet and the sound of a horn. Make a joyful noise before Jehovah, the king. Now, this rejoicing will reach a peak, a pinnacle, at uh, Christ's triumph over the forces of darkness when all of creation will sing to God. Turn to Revelation 5, uh, verses 9 to 13. And they sang a new song, saying... You are worthy to take the book and to open its seal. You were slain and have redeemed us to, our, to God by our blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. You made us kings and priests to our God. That should read a kingdom of priests there, by the way. You made us kings and priests to our God, and we will reign over the earth. And I looked, and I heard the voice of the many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads and myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a great voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive the power and the riches and the wisdom and the strength and the honor and the glory and blessing and I heard with every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and those who are in the sea and those who are, and who are in them saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and forever. Revelation 14.3. Okay, another example, singing the song here at the end. When, when Christ returns, the thing that we're going to do immediately is to sing songs. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four, and twenty, uh, before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were to redeem from the earth. 15.3, Revelation 15.3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of Saints. Okay, Psalm 33, 1 through 4. Rejoice in Jehovah, O righteous ones. Praise is becoming for the upright. Praise Jehovah with the lyre. Sing to him with the harp of ten strings. Um, I guess that would be like a uh, 12-string uh, guitar today. Okay. <coughs> Sing to him with a new song, playing skillfully with shouts of joy. For the word of Jehovah is right, and all his works are in truth. Steve, As Steve clearly established last week, the voice is not the only instrument on which we can praise God. <laughs> we can praise on the stringed instruments and the horned instruments as well. First Chronicles 13, uh, 8. Was this one of the ones you did last week? I think it's in the right category anyway. Uh, <clears throat> First Chronicles 13:8, And David and all Israel played before God with all their might and with singing and with harps and with psalteries and with timbrels and with cymbals, cymbals and with trumpets. All sorts of different instruments. So I wonder how the Church of Christ people can say that we should not have instrumental music in the cl- in the church. First Chronicles and 15:16, uh, and David spoke to the chief of the uh, Levites to choose their brothers to be singers and instruments of music, of lyres and harps and cymbals, sounding by lifting the voice with joy. Uh, First Chronicles 15:27 to 28. And David was clothed with robes of fine linen linen, and all the Levites who carried the ark and the singers and uh, um, Shenaniah, the master of the song. See, I tried to avoid all those names that Steve fell into last week. Okay, Shennaniah, the master of the song with all the singers, David also had on him an ephod of linen. And all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of Jehovah with shouting and with the sound of the coronet and with trumpet and with cymbals and with loud uh, singing aloud with harps and lyres. One more. This is the the dedication of the the temple or or the, the bringing up of the ark. Um, to Jerusalem, and David's time, it was when the second temple was developed in Nehemiah uh, 12, 27, we also see music playing a p- prominent role. Nehemiah 12:27. Uh, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites out of their places to bring them to Jerusalem, to keep the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, psalteries, and with heart. So, we've got plenty of precedent for music to be a major, uh, to play a major role in uh, all of the worship service. But what's to be the content of this song? The simplest message in music is simply relating biblical history. The use of music to relate history helps us to assure accuracy and consistency. Because if we leave out a line of detail, then we mess up the rhythm pattern or the rhyme scheme of the song. Setting a story to music then helps us transition through time. If, for uh, for example... The um, Song of Moses, the long poem trumpeting the leadership of Moses as the deliverer. If we skip some of the details, the, the song poem doesn't fit the form, and we mess up the, the rhythm, and it'll be obvious. Many of these songs we learn as children. I'll, I'm going to do a few just as illustrations of these. Um, You may talk about your men of Gilead, you may talk about your men of old, but there's never been one like old Joshua and the battle of Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. Up to the walls of Jericho, they marched with spear in hand. Go blow those ram horns, Joshua cried, and the walls came a-tumbling down. Oh, the battle is in my hand. See, I messed up the rhythm and I messed up the song, right? Okay. All right. Or, if I had my way. (coughs) This is made popular by Peter, Paul, and Mary earlier. You read about Samson. You read about his birth. He was the strongest man that ever lived on earth. One day the Samson was walking alone. He, ripped, he looked down on the ground. He saw an old jawbone. He picked up that jawbone and he swung it over his head. And when he got through moving, 10,000 was dead. If I had my way, if I had my way in this wicked world, if I had my way, I would tear this building down. Okay? Or, um, um. The the Whale That Swallowed Jonah, Uh, let's see, the whale that swallowed Jonah out in the deep blue sea, sometimes I get that feeling that a whale's following me, (laughs) gave the idea. Uh, All the Christmas songs are examples of those, and we have many of them that are, are good songs, really, if they were sung at the right time of the year. Say, around the Feast of Trumpets, for example. Or I've already done Zacchaeus. Or we've already, we know New Jerusalem. There's another example of one. Okay, all of these songs that we have here. Great songs that re- relate histo- uh, history uh, or stories from the Bible. Okay, a second message in the music. Uh, might be expressed in the Psalms. The Psalms are largely prayers, meditation, reflections, mostly by King David or Esau. Uh, But by singing the Psalms, we empathize with David as an everyman character. He is struggling with the desires of his heart as he comes to know God. We meditate with David, and we think on the wonders of our relationship with God and discover ourselves in the process, understanding more our human condition. It is no wonder, then, that our psalms are some of our favorite hymns. Uh, Psalm 137, for example, is by the waters of Babylon. Do you know that one? By the waters of Babylon, where we sat down and where we wept when we remembered Zion. Where the wicked carried us away in captivity. Demanded that we sing them a song. But how can we sing our sacred song. In a strange land. Oh may the words of my mouth. And the meditation of my heart. Be acceptable in thy sight. O oh Lord. Or Psalm 8. Um, this is Psalm of Creation. Um, there's so many. I mean, it, it, we, we all have our favorite, and the Psalms are, are resplendent with them. A third uh, message in the music is the message of most contemporary music: a message of praise and worship, singing of the marvels of God and His Majesty in awestruck, childlike wonder. Psalm sixty-nine, thirty, says, "I will praise the name of God with a song, and I will magnify Him." If there's one way of saying what our modern music does, that's it. There's songs of praises and songs of honor and songs of worship magnifying God. Most of our contemporary music doesn't really concern itself with doctrinal issues or with story. Rather, it is a simple declaration of love and devotion. I am, however, more than a little uncomfortable with the idolatrous reverence for the cross, this pagan symbol that predates Christ by over 2,000 years. On the other hand, many traditional songs, hymns, infused are infused with Catholic dogma, such as the Trinity. Example: Did you know that one of the songs that we sing regularly, "Holy, Holy, Holy," the original version says, uh, "Let's see, God in three persons, Blessed Trinity." That's the last line on the original versions of this. So that this, it's, it's not. We have modified those to make it fit with the tr- uh, true belief. Okay, but we have uh, traditional hymns are infused with this Catholic dogma. The Trinity, immortal souls, flying off to heaven, the rapture, the cross of the holy relic, prayer wheels, an ever-burning hell, the Friday crucifixion, Easter Sunday resurrection, Christmas mis- misinformation, etc. As powerful, as powerful a medium as music is, we must be vigilant about not allowing erroneous doctrine to infiltrate a service through music. Let us to have the courage and the integrity to change the lyrics of songs whenever we need to, as needed, to make them fit the truth of the scripture, lest we inadvertently teach error in song. We do, now, we must not be seduced into, by the music into teaching lies through song. While we as adults know the difference, and may not be bothered or misled by the erroneous lyric, children who have not yet developed the discernment to discriminate between error and truth, especially if the errors are presented in catchy tunes. With our technology, and great thanks to Brian, we can readily, uh, rather easily amend the lyrics projected onto the screen to align with scripture, unlike what Maxine and I had to do for years and years, uh, tediously changing each page, each song within the uh, red hymnal to make sure that they all match up with scripture. Okay, Um, but it is our job as leaders to make sure that the words are right. It is your job simply to open your hearts and your mouth and to sing joyously to our God.